You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Joseph Ellis. This program originally aired in 2013. I didn't know I was Darth Vader. Um, um, Thank you, Patricia, for that gracious introduction. And it really is a pleasure to come back to this uh, stage. I was here a couple years ago for an earlier book. Um, um, Portsmouth is is a little secret that you probably want to keep a secret before too many people move in and destroy the property values. And um, but it's um, it's become a, a cultural center, and this stage and this music hall is a central institution in that. So again, um, I want to tell you in the time I've got a story. It's a very familiar story. It's been told by virtually every generation of historians. It's the um, topic of one of the more popular and frequently produced plays in the American repertoire, namely 1776, which is also made into a film. Um, It's how American independence happened. Um, Since the story's been told so often, I better darn well have something fresh to say here. And um, something, if not original, so old that it seems new because we've forgotten it. But um, uh, and my ulterior purpose uh, is to make sure that you purchase this undoubtedly magisterial book. and if you have any doubts about it, it's every cent in the royalties goes to the um, educational fund for Alexander Ellis, who's uh, currently about ready to start college. And um, <laughs> uh, none of it will be spent on luxuries. Um, <clears throat> I began my work on this book with an assumption and a question. The assumption was that no event in American history looks more inevitable in retrospect and was more problematic at the time than the American Revolution. That when we look back, it seems like that's the way it had to play out. But if you were going through the, the revolutionary moment, um, they were improvising on the edge of catastrophe uh, and recovering that sense of history happening, the sense of confusion was one of my uh, intentions and sometimes it's, it's not easy to write clearly about confusion um, but that's one of the things I want to do. Um, the question I call the Wilkes-Barre question. Anybody here from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania? I uh, doubt it, but um, um, the current city of Wilkes-Barre has a population about twice the size of the white population of Virginia in 1776. Now, if we were to go to Wilkes-Barre right now and walk down the street. Do you think we could identify George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, 
Patrick Henry, John Marshall, you were never gonna find them. Um, now at some theoretical level, you gotta believe such leadership does exist there in latent form. But it won't come to the surface. And somehow it came to the surface in that moment in America in late 18th century. So why did that happen? There's a kind of <clears throat> Toynbean theory. Arnold Toynbee, great crises produce great leaders. If you, you know, Bill Clinton thought he could never be a great president because he didn't ever have a great crisis except his own personal crisis, I guess. And, um, 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 and so the crisis theory makes some sort of sense and it does accurately describe the American Revolution in its earliest uh, modes. Um, it was a great crisis. It forced you to choose. Um, but the problem with this Toynbean theory is we can all think of a lot of moments where there's a great crisis and no leadership whatsoever emerges, like right now. Okay. Now you can't say that something was special in the water back then, and you can't say God came down from on high and blessed this generation in some particular way. Supernatural explanations are not admissible in a secular discipline like history. Um, so what happened? I cannot give you a coherent a whole answer to that, but I can give you a, an anecdotal answer. In May of 1775, George Washington put on his military uniform and left Mount Vernon to head up to Philadelphia to attend the Second Continental Congress. Now notice, and this, you know, while chronology is the last refuge of the feeble-minded, it's the last uh, resort for most historians. The war starts in April of 75, Lexington and Concord. Bunker Hill happens in June. Big battles. The big battle is Bunker Hill. Independence is not declared until July of 76. That's 15 months. There's this period when we're at war, but we haven't really decided that we want to declare independence. Very important point. Anyway, Washington wants to give instructions to his his manager at Mount Vernon, um, whose name is Lund Washington, and um, he says, when the British come up the Potomac, not if, but when, get out my books and Martha. Presumably not in that order. <laughs> he fully expected he was going to lose everything. So that phrase that Jefferson will write 15 months later, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, wasn't purely rhetorical. Um, and as it happens, four years later, 
1779, a British frigate does come up the Potomac and anchors off of Mount Vernon. And Lund, Washington, decides to send a little skiff out to the river. Potomac's pretty wide right there, if you've ever been to Mount Vernon. And um, with fruit and gifts for the British captain to somewhat appease him for, and, and perhaps prevent him from taking hostile action. And the, um, the captain says, oh, I'm just fishing for herring. I'll take the gifts, but you know, that's it. So Lund writes Washington about this event and says he's so relieved that nothing happened. And Washington writes him back and says, I am extraordinarily upset at what you've just told me. You have sullied my honor. You have stained my character. If it happens again, let them burn it to the ground. That's what you're dealing with here. These are people who are all in. Um, we're accustomed to thinking that national political candidates have to give up a great deal of privacy. Some of them have to be crazy to do it as far as I'm concerned. And, um, but these people are giving up everything on a wager. Um, one of the other insights I got that I didn't have as fully until I went into the papers, the American Revolution was eminently avoidable. It was an unnecessary war. The way out of it diplomatically was clear to both sides. And the consensus that independence was going to happen didn't happen until like April and May of 76. It's really late. Before that, everybody thinks we're going to get out of this. The, as, the, as Jefferson put it, the wave will pass under the ship. What was the diplomatic resolution? William Pitt in the House of Lords, Edmund Burke in the House of Commons both advocated this solution. Both Thomas Jefferson and John Dickinson, uh, Dickinson of Pennsylvania, also advocated it in a formal thing called the Olive Branch Petition to George III. It was, look, we'll let your uh, colonial legislatures tax and legislate for you. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have Parliament do that. We'll back off. You stay in the empire, acknowledge the king as your sovereign, and remain within the economic rules of the Navigation Acts, which are beneficial both to Britain and to the American colonies. In effect, what you would have done is create the British Commonwealth 100 years early. Later on, the Brits are going to say, oh, that's like a good idea. But at the time, they reject it. And then it's too late. Too many people have died. The war has killed and raped too many people. 
Why did they reject it? Three reasons. One, that the great jurist William Blackstone said, and this is a principle almost as old as Aristotle, that all governments, including all empires, need to have a final source of sovereignty. It has to be a single source. And the source of sovereignty in the British Empire is parliament. You can't have multiple sources of sovereignty any more than you can have multiple gods. And the colonial position was you would have, you know, you would have each of these colonial legislatures sovereign over its own domestic policy. Later on, as you, as, as you know from the, the Constitutional Convention, we do multiple sovereignties and create ambiguity about where sovereignty really lies. Um, second reason is an early version of what will subsequently be called the domino theory. If we let the North Americans get away with this and loosen the, the binds of empire, what happens to Ireland? What happens to Scotland? What happens to India? That's a message that is not good for the British Empire. And third and finally, we don't need to resolve this diplomatically because we have a superior army and navy that can squash it early on and rather easily. We have the military power to be an imperial power that is invincible. Um, so, George III is the one who really decides that this is a war that's gonna happen. Um, and one of the things I discovered that is one of those so long, so long ago nobody remembers it things is that they sent in May a resolution, actually John Adams wrote it, to all the colonial legislatures to say, we think you should redo your constitutions from British colonial constitutions to American state constitutions. Now, if you decide to do that, you have pretty well decided that you're gonna secede from the British Empire. So this is a de facto declaration of independence. Each state, colony cum state, sent that request out to all of the towns and counties in the state. In Massachusetts, 42 towns responded. We've got, in these archival sources, all the responses, and they all say pretty much the same thing. They say that just a half a year ago, we could never believe we were reaching this conclusion, namely that we're gonna leave the British Empire. We believed that George III was our patron, was our friend, was our affectionate monarchical father. Now, we regard him as a tyrant because he is raising a huge army, uh, including Hessian troops, professionals, who are known to take no prisoners, to invade us. And that's what he's doing. He's raising a 42,000 man force. The population of Philadelphia at that time was only 30,000. It's the largest amphibious force ever to cross the Atlantic until World War I. 
we're going to squash this thing, this rebellion, at its inception. Um, and the response of the colonists is to say, we don't have a choice. It's no longer a constitutional issue. It's a military issue. You know, you've, you've declared independence of us. And so the, there hadn't been a consensus on independence outside of New England. New England's pretty, you know, rock, ready to rock and roll because they've got, they got troops occupying Massachusetts. But outside of Massachusetts, it's uh, very problematic until this invasion is threatened. So that the king and his equivalent of the Secretary of War, George Germain, imp by launching this invasion, creates a consensus for independence that didn't exist before. They're going to invade in New York. And if you ever look at a map, New York is an archipelago. It's three islands, Staten Island, Long Island, and Manhattan. It is indefensible if you don't have a navy. And we don't got no navy. And the British have the best navy in the world. Washington comes down from the Boston siege and brings what's being called for the first time the Continental Army. It's really 90% New Englanders. Um, and they're going to try to defend New York. Big mistake. Huge mistake. Why is he going to defend New York? Well, first of all, because the Continental Congress says that's what he's supposed to do. Civilian control of the military, he's not going to disobey that, even though he knows, based on surveillances of previous um, generals there, that it's probably indefensible. He thinks he's going to create a series of bunker hills on Long Island and bleed the, bleed the British Army to death before they have to evacuate. It never occurs to him that he could have the entire Continental Army annihilated. And as we shall see, the British had three or four chances to do that. The other reason he's going to defend it is because Washington is driven by an almost quasi-medieval sense of honor. He believes that if General Howe, the British Army commander, his brother, um, is the, also the admiral, so it's William Howe and Richard Howe, that if William Howe presents himself on the field of battle, he is honor bound to meet him. A summons to battle is a summons to duel. And not to respond is to behave dishonorably. This is a stupid idea. Um, but it's one that Washington holds very tenaciously. If you think about it, there's, in the entire late 18th century form of warfare, there's certain habits that are driven by a sense of honor that appear to us to be ridiculous. For example, if two formations are coming to fire on each other and raise their muskets, why don't you lie down? Why do you stand there and get disemboweled and beheaded? Dishonorable. Um, 
Why do generals never want to order retreats? Even though sometimes that's the most successful kind of thing you can do because it's dishonorable. Um, at any rate, in addition to the problem of terrain, and you've got this battle going on in Long Island at the same time as the debates going on in Philadelphia about the language of the Declaration of Independence. So you've got two stories going on. They're really one story. The political story, Continental Congress, the military story, the Continental Army. Um, the Continental Army is at the most generous thing you could say is a work in progress. Um, the average experience of a soldier in the Continental Army was less than six months. The average experience of a soldier in the British Army was seven years. Um, if you think about it, it's almost impossible to create an army de novo. Take the British Army 150 years with all these regulations and all the infrastructure, how to, you know, even, you know, hospitals, commissary, quartermaster, promotion rates, where do you put the latrines, um, all that stuff. Um, especially officer class, like Nathaniel Green from Providence, Rhode Island, is a Quaker merchant one year, and the next year he's a general. Never, hurt, not, never fired a shot in anger. Um, what's the name of the artillery guy? Um, Knox, Henry Knox, thank you. Um, bookseller in Boston. Next year, he's in charge of the entire artillery com uh, campaign. He becomes colonel and then a general. Those kind of things are, would have been regarded as preposterous in the British Army, where it took 20 or 30 years to make it. So you've got this group of amateurs attempting to defend an indefensible location against what is together the finest Army Navy in the world. You can predict what is going to happen. It is a catastrophe. Washington begins the Battle of New York with 28,000 troops. He ends it with 5,000. Not all of those people have been killed. Some of them have been captured, and a lot of them, the militia, just run away. The militia are really good at one thing, running away, okay? And uh, the myth of the militia as the major source of the military success of the Revolutionary Army is total nonsense. Um, uh, and it's, it's a myth created after the war in order to avoid recognizing that you really needed a standing army to win the war, because they didn't like that. Um, uh, Washington attempts to defend Long Island and is trapped there. The British control the East River and Long Island Sound. He can't get off. And yet on August 30th of uh, 76, he makes this desperate attempt. It's the early American version of Dunkirk. And, in, and it takes a perfect storm of events for this to work. A nor'easter comes in so that the currents favor his, his side. Then a fog comes in to cover the retreat. He gets everybody off Long Island back to Manhattan. 
and the British wake up the next morning surprised that they haven't been able to, that they've escaped. Um, he then could have, you know, he, he, keeps, he keeps thinking that the name of the game is to contest the British Army, even though what he should have thought is, let's get off this archipelago, okay? Um, as a consequence of this battle, Washington begins to think differently about the war. So that in the summer of 76, the framework for how the war is actually going to occur gets established. It's not going to be a short war. Everybody always thinks wars are going to be short at the beginning. This is going to be a protracted conflict. And here is the key insight. And Washington begins to get it after the debacle in New York. I don't have to win. The British have to win. I just have to not lose. What does that mean? What's the center of the rebellion? The center of the rebellion is not a location. It's not Boston. It's not New York. It's not Philadelphia. It's not Charleston. They capture all of those places. The center of the rebellion is the Continental Army. You got to get that. They had their chance to get it in the summer of 76. They missed it. It will never come again because Washington will not put the Continental Army at risk. And that's how the war plays out. We don't win the war. British simply decide it's not worth it anymore. Um, if you think about it, most of the, well, not most, but a lot of the great generals in world history end up losers. Hannibal, Napoleon, Robert E. Lee, Rommel. Washington was not a great general, tactically. He was outmaneuvered in almost every battle. He, no great general has ever lost as many battles as George Washington. But he got the big thing right. The overall strategic insight. The only way he could lose the war was by trying to win it. And he proved to be correct. Um, I'm almost finished my time and there's an insight or quote, an insight might be too arrogant a phrase. Um, the editor of the LA Times, back when we were ratcheting up our policy, our ground troops in Iraq, um, wrote me and said, or called me and said, Joe, I want you to write a piece, an op-ed piece, on what George Washington would say about Iraq. <laughs> so I said, well, Stephanie, like, first of all, he wouldn't know where Iraq was, you know, and he doesn't know about weapons of mass destruction or jihad or whatever. And that bringing members of that generation into the present is anachronistic and it's sort of like planting cut flowers. <laughs> it's not going to work. And she said, that's great. Just write the piece. <laughs> 
And um, so I did. And what I found myself saying in over succinct form is, Washington would say, we've become the British. He wouldn't understand that. That um, most of the, if you ask the, most of the American people if the United States is an empire, they will say no. If you ask everybody else in the world, they will say yes. So we have become the empire. We have succeeded Great Britain as the dominant world power. We have uh, a military force larger than the next 10 countries combined. Um, but it, it's the, Washington believed that we're a republic. Res publica, republic. Republics operate on the principle of consent. Empires operate on the principle of coercion. And whereas Washington was a man of his time, trying to bring him into our time, the one thing that he would find the most difficult to explain is the size of the American military and its presence overseas. Um, I'm going to leave myself open to lots of questions from the, from the woman from, National, from New Hampshire Radio, and thank you very much for listening to this. It's Virginia, by the way. Like the colony? Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> that's where I'm from, from Virginia. I was born in Virginia. Nice to see you again, Joseph Ellis. Thank you. So given that all that you know about the revolution and the scale of this battle and how outnumbered the Americans were and how disorganized, really, the Continental mm. Congress was, is it a miracle that we're even here today? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, again, it's part of my attempt to recover the improvisational character of the revolution and the, especially this, this moment. And, um, and um, it's provident, I mean, Washington always said it was a standing miracle. I wonder what a sitting miracle would look like, but the standing miracle that we won the war. Um, uh, and this moment in the war at the very beginning was in retrospect, the opportunity for the British to quash the American Revolution before it really got started. Um, and as I said, once they missed that, and General Howe came under considerable criticism back in Britain later on for this, um, then um, it, Washington would never allow it to happen again, and it became very difficult for the British to win. General William Howe was criticized, as you mentioned. Clinton, one of his yeah. colleagues, was really pushing he basically, Admiral Howe, halted the assault on Long Island after the first bloody day. Mm -hmm. He could have quashed it right there. Why didn't he? He didn't want to quash the Continental Army. He didn't want to annihilate it. He wanted to deliver it a, a measured, proportionate blow so that he and his brother could then negotiate a peace. They wanted to be peacekeepers. Both of the Howe brothers, this is really, most people don't know this, were members of parliament and voted against a military policy towards the colonies. They thought it was misbe misbegotten or misguided. So, by the way, did Jeffrey Amherst. Amherst said he would never 
fight the American colonists and refused the command. Um, they accepted the command on the belief that they could lead a, this expeditionary force, deliver a stunning blow, and then negotiate peace. And that's what they wanted to do. They delivered this blow on Long Island, and Richard Howe then requested a meeting with people from the Congress. It's diplomatically complicated, but they eventually sent three people out to Staten Island to meet with him. And they were John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Edward Rut Rutledge from South Carolina. And in, in the conversation, Richard Howe says, well, look, I think you guys realize you can't win. Militarily, you're, you're, you're not going to ever win. And why don't we find a way to move past this? and reconcile. And he says, it would really leave me extremely upset to realize, to know that I was going to have to cause pain or defeat for you. And Franklin says, my Lord, rest assured, we will not permit that to happen. Um, um, we would, anyway. Um, and Franklin turns the tables on Howe. Franklin says... Who was a friend of his. He, they'd been they friends. had known each other in London. Yes, they had. And um, Howe is saying, you guys can't win. Give up. Let's get an armistice. Franklin's saying, Britain can't win. Franklin's saying, and he does say this, and he says to Howe, you would be best served, Sir Richard, to go back to London and disassociate yourself with this delusional commitment. There is no way you can conquer the American people. You might capture New York, but you're not going to be able to win the war. We have about 200,000 able-bodied men between the ages of 15 and 50. So you kill 20,000, we've got another 130,000 to replace them. You capture the Continental Army, we'll just raise another army. Adams says the same thing. Now, whether they could have actually done that, I don't know. But the level of commitment that they felt about this is pretty powerful. And, um, and they're in it, as I was saying, you know, in it all the way. Um, uh, what would have happened if they had captured and destroyed the Continental Army, including Washington, in New York? Hmm. Um, it's an unanswerable question. And, I, and I've asked a lot of professional historians that they think. Um, they're kind of divided, and I know it's a cop-out for me not to come up with some, some of my I think there was a 50-50 chance that at that point they would have been willing to take the deal the British were offering. Because while 20% of the population, 19 actually percent, is loyalists, that doesn't mean the other 80% are patriots. It means that in New England it's probably about 90%, but in the rest of the colonies, there's this middle group that's like 40% that they really are going to go either way. And, they're, and, and in addition to being equivocal, they're also, their patriotism is skin deep. And they don't want the war. The war is a pain in the neck. Um, that, that's a sizable group. And if they had gone over, you know, th th then that would have been the end of it. And then they would have rounded up the, the people like Adams and they would have hung them. Right. 
But they did. The, the Continental Army took quite a thrashing first in Long Island and then a second thrashing at Kipps Bay, right. where you paint this image of, you know, Washington on his horse saying, oh, my goodness, what's happened to my army? Is they're running all the other way. I mean, these people... They're running right past him, yeah. Running right past him. But there was this myth about Washington, right? That he was this, he was this invincible general, the man who would lead them forward to independence. Why did that myth prevail even after these terrible losses? Um, first of all, he, you know, his service in the French and Indian War, he, he survived a couple of battles, especially the Battle of the Monongahela, when everybody else was getting killed. And there was this sense that, you know, like the Robert Duvall character in Apocalypse Now, you know, like mortar rounds smellers. go off around him and he doesn't even pay any attention to it. Um, he also looked the part. He's six three and a quarter, 202 pounds. He looks like uh, John Wayne in st Circus Stagecoach, okay? Um, he's a stud. Um, um, and he had a commanding presence. Uh, but at this, this is the lowest moment in Washington's life this summer of 76 in New York. And he is virtually clinically depressed because of the, the failure of the army. He, he regards the army as a projection of himself and therefore that it's a statement about his character that they're being defeated. Um, uh, in what, you know, in Manhattan, after Kipps Bay, as the troops are retreating, he stays on the field, even though the British are coming within 50 meters. And Nathaniel Green, his lieutenant, says he sought life rather, he sought death rather than life. Mm -hmm. He wanted to go down a martyr if, he was gonna, if they were gonna lose. He wanted not to survive if the army was going to be defeated. Um, so, and it was really close. And in this period of time, some people back in the Congress, not a lot, but some, like Benjamin Rush and a few others, start saying, well, maybe he's not the right guy to lead the army. Okay? You do get a little bit of, of that kind of talk. And even one of his aides, Joseph Reed, starts to say, you know, He's indecisive about what he really wants to do. It's, it's the only time this happens, and uh, the British change generals three or four times. We never change throughout the entire war. But this is the moment when the Army's most at risk and Washington's reputation is at risk and Washington's psyche is suffering more than any other time in his life. Joseph Reed, however, is able to convince Washington before that uh, Manhattan fight in Kipps Bay to retreat from Long Island to Manhattan. This is, you know, a slap in the face for a man guided by honor, as you described yeah, earlier. Yeah. How was he able to convince him? And tell us a little bit about what a real tactical miracle that was. It was quite a, mm. quite a feat. Yeah. Um, Washington himself refused to make the decision to retreat from Long Island because, it's going to, first of all, it's going to be a difficult tactical thing. Um, because he thought the retreat was dishonorable. What he requires is the entire council of war, all the generals on his staff, to recommend it. And then he's faced with a unanimous opinion that he cannot reject. And so that's what happens. Um, because the, uh, the, opposite, you know, the answer is either to stay there and be annihilated or to make an effort to get off. And you're right. This is the single most important battle scene in the Revolutionary War. 
but it's not depicted in most art um, because it wasn't reported at the time because the newspapers of the time reported the American defeat as an American victory. It was, treason Imagine that. It was, it was treasonable for a journalist to tell the truth. Um, um, and so if, if we had won a victory, why do we have to retreat? Um, but as I say, the, the tides have to be right, the winds have to be right, a fog has to come on in the, in the early morning to cover the last elements of the retreat. And, you know, and Washington's the last person to get on the last boat to cross the East River. And, and so like 18,000 troops are going, are going across that river in that one. There's a guy called Glover and his marblehead fishermen who are the ones that really do this. And they really know what they're doing with boats. And they're the ones that are gonna do crossing the Delaware too. Um, uh, but if I was to pick, the reason I say this is such an important battle even though it's a defeat, if they don't get across, the war could be over. If they don't get across, the army's gone. They could be. That they could would be, be over. trapped yeah, here. Yeah, they? yeah. And so, um, I mean, I've, I've tried to convince a couple of contemporary artists that they should do this, and um, and I haven't been successful. Though. Well, you know, painting scenes of retreat, not really. Yeah, I know. Epic. I know. I know. Um, but. Um, this is a strategic retreat which makes possible ultimate victory. Well, of course, while this military uh, action is going on, the Continental Congress are trying to figure out, first, they get all the colonies to vote on independence, which is uh, a, quite a coup, quite a feat. Hmm. Then they have to figure out, what kind of government do we want? Ah. And there are a couple, number of different submissions. And you conclude in the book, they seem to know what they were against but couldn't quite figure out what they were for. That's right. Now, this is a complaint that we hear echoed in today's politics. Mm -hmm. So is there something built into the system? Are there some seeds that have carried on today? I mean, it's mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. a historical uh Oh, we're event. gonna get into Tea Party stuff here. I can see this. And um, um, well, let me try to do a wind up to answer that with a pitch. Namely, the first sentence in the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a confederation of sovereign states provisionally united to fight the war and then go their separate ways. There is no American nation. There is no such thing as we the American people. There is such a thing as the cause, which is independence. Think about it this way. The average American is born, lives out his or her life, and dies within a 15-mile radius. They don't have cell phones. They don't know a world outside their local world, at best their state. And so there is no overall sense of being an American. The very term American revolution is a misnomer. There is no such thing as America. Um, it comes together, I said, provisionally to win. The only thing they had had in common prior to this is membership of the British Empire. They're British citizens. The only thing they have in common during the war is opposition to the British Empire. And when that ends, what do they have? Nothing. And they create a government called the Articles of Confederation that's really not a government. It's sort of like the EU. 
which is a loose confederation of nations. Each state thinks of itself as a nation. When, when Jefferson is about ready to write the Declaration of Independence, almost on this day, 237 years ago, in 7th and Market Street, he writes a letter back to Virginia. He says, oh, how I wish I were in my country. Mm. His country's Virginia. It's, that's, what he's, that's what he's talking about. Well, this is one of the great paradoxes that you write about that ensured that this would be a very long battle. I mm. mean, it was the principles of the American Revolution that made sure that it was a long conflict. Mm. They were not willing, states or colonies were not willing to create a militia or a, 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 an a army, a standing army, obviously. Right, right. That's what, what Virginia's saying here. Again, a lot of people don't know this. Demographically, the, the 13 states could have fielded an army of 150,000 easily. They had demographically the capacity to do that. They end up fielding an army that averages between 12 and 15,000 for most of the war, and sometimes gets really low at the end of enlistment periods. Why? The states are not interested as much in sending their, their young men to the Continental Army. They want them to be in the militia to take care of the state. The states are their highest priority. And also, so they pay higher salaries or, to, or stipends to people that serve in the militia than people that would serve in the Continental Army. And so who in his right mind is going to do that? The net consequence is the people who serve in the Continental Army are the dregs of American society. They are the recently freed in, uh, slaves, indentured servants, the uh, recent Irish immigrants, um, and there's a core of them, about three or 4,000, that sign up for the duration. That's what they say, the duration. That means you're going to fight the whole war until the war is over. Um, they're the people that won the war. And they never got their due. Um, because it's, end, it's the end, in the end, it's a war of attrition and patience and uh, willingness to hold on. And those are the guys that did that. Um, and at the end of the war, instead of rewarding them with pensions or hosannas on high, they really wanted them to disappear because they were reminders of what, as you said, is a standing army. And they hate that. Um, uh, and especially in New England, when they came back to New England, the press was really hostile to them. People uh, told them that they didn't want them living in town because they, and, and it's really, it's really horrible. Now, during the war, if you lived where the, war, where the army was, it's true, you wouldn't like these guys because they're going to take all your food and all your livestock, and they're, and they're rough people. Um, um, but after the war, they should have been treated much better than they were, and it's a disgrace that what happened to them. That is one of the tragedies revealed to me in this book that I didn't know about previously, this kind of myth of the militia. And I'm wondering about that because... You know, you present in this book quite a number of um, essential fictions or myths mm. that uh, the early Americans were living with. And this is one that continued, this sort of myth that it was the Minutemen that mm. won the war, not mm -hmm. the Continental Army. And also a press that concealed all of the uh, losses or, let's say, glorified what happened on the battlefields. So what are we talking about here? A country that is built on myths? <laughs> um. To some extent, all nations are built on myths, and um, 
and in the United States is hardly um, different. Um, I'm not trying to undermine the glory of the success of the American Revolution. I'm trying to present a realistic picture of the way it really happened. Um, it's a picture in which there still are some pretty good heroes. Washington's a hero in this, even though it's, you know, Nathaniel Green is a hero in this. Benjamin Franklin is a, is a hero, too. Um, Adams, you know, this is the greatest moment in Adams' life. Okay? Adams is the guy that drives us to independence and then becomes the director of war and ordinance and really manages the war. <laughs> when he appointed to this, his first thing is to write to his friends at Harvard and say, find all the books on how you run an army. <laughs> <laughs> Send them to me quickly, because I don't know anything about this, you know? And um, um, it's true. Um, but in fact, in fact, he read about the Romans, and at one point after a particularly hard battle said, they should be all candidates for decimation. Right, that's what the Roman army did after a serious defeat. Every tenth soldier was killed. He says, if you just tell them that, then they'll, they'll buck up. And, um, but he also was reading Polybius and... Uh, um, and the, and the, the Punic War and the, uh, uh, Pel Pen what's the right word? Peloponnesian War, thank War. you. And uh, for lessons, and one of the lessons is the Thebians couldn't fight the Spartans on equal terms, and so they fight a defensive war and, uh, and eventually win. And the, he, he, so he's looking for classical um, examples or uh, samples of how the American strategy should be a defensive, what they call a war of posts, okay? Meaning it's not a guerrilla war because it's a conventional army, but it is, um, it is a war which you don't fight unless you have superiority. And that becomes the, the Washingtonian strategy, right, the Thebian right. war. Question from the audience here. You said we did not win, but the Brits just got tired and said it was just not worth it. What about Saratoga and Yorktown victories? Those are big victories. And Burgoyne surrounds about 6,000 troops, and there's 7,700 troops at Yorktown. Um, and those, those are you know, huge defeats. But the British still have 30,000 troops in America after Yorktown. Um, and... They have a banking system that's capable of continuing to fund the war in a way that we don't. Um, the decision that they make is based on several factors. One is when the French come into the war in 78, it forces the British to fight not just in North America, but in the Caribbean and in Europe as well. So they're really stretched thin. Um, it's not worth it anymore. I mean, it, they'd rather, they would rather lose North America than lose the Caribbean. Um, Jamaica. It, it's the sugar, sugar, believe it or not, that's, you know, economically true. Um, I, so the, the, the questioner is right that there were significant British defeats, but they had the military capacity to continue to fight. But, you know, it's like um, the current or the recent American position in Afghanistan. How long are you going to stay? Forever? They were facing an analogous kind of strategic dilemma. What was the most interesting fact you discovered while researching this book? Probably the one that nobody knew before is, and that I was surprised the Dickens out of me was the press, mm -hmm. the press coverage of the war. and of, uh, Abigail Adams had no idea what was going Abigail on? Abigail Adams says to John, what's going on in New York? We can't seem to find out. 
And um, it's because the, the New England press is reporting it as, again, a great American victory when they were humiliated. Adams has a good line with Abigail when she, she says, John, tell me, why? And she says, he says, um, in general, our generals were outgeneraled. <laughs> <laughs> what did this loss in New York mean to George Washington as a general and then as a president? Mm. As a general, it, it's a huge defeat, and he keeps looking to come back to New York during the war. That's where the final battle is going to be, because that's where the British Navy and Army are headquartered, and it's a place where I can redeem my previous disastrous uh, behaviors. And um, uh, as president, I mean, no one in American history did not want to be president more than George Washington. He said he felt like he was going to the, you know, to the guillotine or to the hangman's noose. When they, and, and the first capital is in New York, okay? Um, but not because it's New York. For him, and this is actually true of the first four presidents of the United States. People sometimes say, Joe Ellis is a presidential historian. No, I'm not. I just wrote about guys who happened to be president. Um, 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 the presidency was an epilogue for him instead of a capstone to his career. He thought his great achievement was winning the war, being commander in chief of the Continental Army. That was it. And then he, as Cincinnatus, retires to his vine and fig tree at Mount Vernon. Okay, that's what he wanted more than anything else. And he thought he was gonna die. No male member of the Washington line in four generations had lived past their 50s. And he has this thing about sliding, gliding down the flow, the stream of life, you know. And he writes to Lafayette uh, when Lafayette sees him for the last time in 1782. He says, I have had my day. He figures it's over for him. So the presidency is something he doesn't want, never expected, and uh, could have done without as far as he was concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of people asked, who is your favorite historical figure? And what, what would you ask them if you were in front of them today? Back from that group back there, it'd be Adams. You knew that. And, um, and the reason I would pick him, because he'd spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> he'd tell you what really happened and what he really felt and thought about it. Bring Abigail into the mix if we possibly could. Um, I've been supporting for several years, along with David McCullough, the idea of an Adams uh, monument on the mall. And they're, they're moving ahead with that, although that's sacred space, and it might not quite be on the mall. It might be right off the mall. But I, I say let Abigail and John with little John Quincy, and then we get family values people behind this. And you get the... <laughs> it's funny, though, in the beginning, early in the book, you call him a conservative revolutionary. Yeah. Why? He's a, ra he's a rare hybrid in that yeah. regard. He's a revolutionary in the radical sense that he's a radical in, in terms of American independence. Everybody else in 75 and er into early 76, most everybody in the Congress is moderates. Let's, let's not let this become a, a, a independence yeah. because that's suicidal. And he, from the, from the beginning, is saying, you are waiting for a Messiah who will never come. 
It may not be. But, but well, as a conservative, he doesn't want the full implications of the American Revolution, especially with regard to rights, ending slavery, property rights, women's rights. He said, if we try to solve, solve all those things at once, we're going to destroy the consensus for independence. That's what the French are going to do in the French Revolution. And that's, that's not a good thing. He says, like, the French like to drink their soup hot, and it scalds their throat. Americans will blow on their soup and more gradually, it really should be called the American evolution. Um, as we, now, if you believe that justice delayed is justice denied, this is treasonable behavior on his part. I happen to think, I'm a good Burkean conservative in this regard, this was, this was a sensible policy. Well, and it also sort of stamps the way American politics works in the future, doesn't it? Don't push for everything. Get what you can. Yeah, well, in a democracy, it's hard to be a, a leader that gets too far out of popular opinion. Um, you know, you can't, if you get too far out ahead, nobody's behind you. Um, that's one of the different, you know, Napoleon could do whatever he wanted to do and, um, because nobody else had a say in it. But um, Franklin Roosevelt, for example, in the late 30s, when 90% of the American people are isolationists, he's got to build a consensus before he can get us into the war. And then the Japanese help him out by bombing Pearl Harbor. So, yeah. Thinking back about this, and, and um, this is something that carries on today, a lot of people, although it may not be admissible evidence for a historian, say that God was on the side of the American cause. This mm. is something that has been invoked many times and, and really shaped cultural and political life in, in the United States in some ways. How powerful was it then, and how has it shaped our culture? Uh, boy. Um, well, I was raised a Catholic, but I became an atheist. And, but as a historian, I'm a secular humanist, Therefore, we cannot admit miracles. They had this guy in class at Yale once who said, when he was asked the question, why did Jonathan Edwards, why did, why did um, the Great Awakening start in Northampton, Massachusetts? And the guy said, because Jesus Christ came to Northampton, Massachusetts. And, um, and, the, guy, and the professor said, but you can believe that in your own value system, but that's not admissible in a, in a secular uh, historical argument. The same thing. Washington didn't believe in, Washington was a practicing Anglican, but a lukewarm Anglican. Most of these guys, um, Adams ends up being a Unitarian, Franklin's a deist, Jefferson's a deist. Um, most of them don't think they're going anywhere when they die, but into the ground. Um, Adams and Jefferson exchange notes about this in, in their twilight years and say, and Adam says, well, if we are going into the ground, it doesn't make any difference anyway, and so I might as well leave my life as a Christian. That's sort of Pascal's wager. Um, he has a funny line. He says, um, Adams says, if it could ever be shown conclusively that there is no life hereafter, my advice to every man, woman, and child on the planet is to take opium. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's really good stuff. And, um, and when Washington dies, there's no minister in the room, oh. okay? Um, it takes him eight or 10 hours to die because he's got this throat infection, but uh, it's very painful too. Um, but so, so where does all this idea that our founding fathers, you know, were religious men who wanted to create a This is Glenn Beck nonsense, that's what that is. Um, <laughs> uh, like, 
One of the reasons they behave as well as they do on occasion is because they don't really think there is anything called real immortality. The only form of immortality that they can imagine being real is secular immortality, meaning that we'd be sitting in a music hall 237 years later talking about them. And that keeps them alive in, in a way, and part of posterity. And so and they're, they're, one of the reasons that all their papers are so preserved is they kept every word thinking that we would be interested in what they had to say. And, um, but living on in our memories is, part, is the only form of immortality that most of them believed in. So they may have known that, but there's this sense of American dualism. You know, there was this non-negotiable, resolute view that independence was going to come to this nation, mm. yet no cohesive will to make it happen. So how mm. did that sense of American inevitability foment in the citizens? Mm. You're right. What they call the cause, uh, capitals or capital C-A-U, or italicized, was an act, an article of faith. That's what I was trying to ask in the first part of my presentation. Where does that come from? Uh, it's, uh, it's different with different people, but in the Continental Congress and in the officer class of the Continental Army, it's a sense that if they don't succeed, they're going to be enslaved. That's the word they used. It's, now, it's highly ironic. Washington owns 200 slaves during the American Revolution. So does Jefferson but in part because they're familiar with slavery as masters, the last thing they want is to ever to consider themselves in that, in that same condition. Um, it's a bit paranoid. Um, and the ra radical ideology of the revolutionary is, now this is where it, some of the contemporary things you were referring to, now contemporary, it's a, it's a belief that any kind of government that's distant is tyrannical. And any government you can't see, like go talk to them at, the, at their house or in the meeting house, is not to be trusted. And it's, the word they use is consolidation, consolidation of power. Once it gets there, it builds its power and it devours. This is the, this is the beginning of a kind of libertarian position, um, anti-government position. Government is not us, government is them. You can see that in the revolution. And now it makes sense. One of the problems with the Tea Party thing is the reason that they can say what they say about government is because they're not represented in parliament. They got no representatives. What happens when you have representatives in the Congress? Then it changes the ball game. And certain people that were very avidly pro, you know, anti-government, I guess, like Sam Adams, they, they're merciless in squashing these people, saying that it's, an, it's another universe now because we have our own thing. But um, that anti-government ethos, the anti-federalists take this, the same position during the debate over the Constitution, and Jefferson and, and Madison are the first party, the Republican Party, it's, it's not the same thing as the modern Republican Party. They take a certain, you know, the, the federal government is a foreign government. In terms of domestic policy, they are a foreign government. The, the sovereignty in for, on domestic policy resides with the states. Um, and they believe that. It's a convenient position because it also means that nobody can rule slavery out. Joseph Ellis, we've run out of time, but before I thank you, I want to thank some of the many people who helped put these wonderful events together. 
The executive producer and live stage presentation director of Writers on a New England Stage is Patricia Lynch. The associate producer and communications director is Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio president is Betsy Gardella. New Hampshire Public Radio's live show producer tonight is Sarah Plord. Our broadcast producer is Rebecca Lavoy. The music hall production manager is Jana Morris. Live sound and recording engineer Noah Lefebvre. And musical director and band Bob Lord and Dreadnought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please join me in thanking the wonderful Joseph Ellis for joining us tonight. <laughs>